0: Hi, and welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, and I'm here today to tell you about not one, not two, not three, but four murderous sisters. Now, this is a case I've known about for years, but have actively, actively avoided researching. Because, you know what? I can be a coward. No one's perfect. And I heard rumors that this case involved satanic sacrifice and blood and the corpses of... Very young people in, I don't even want to say it, but I'm going to say it, in soda bottles. Uh, yeah. But I finally researched this case, and I'm happy to inform you that some of the most bloody details were probably just rumors. In fact, I even saw a very reassuring uh, clip of a pundit saying that bodies can't fit in soda bottles. Huh, so there you have it. I guess the takeaway is, you just never know what's going to happen when you start researching murder. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this tale of sisterhood gone bad, and don't worry, there are still bodies. So we're headed to Mexico, to the Mexican state of Jalisco, in about the 1950s, 1960s. See you there. There's nothing more special than a sister. The bond that sisters share is often hard to describe to outsiders. It can be more intimate than friendship, more intuitive than romantic love. Sisters get each other without having to explain too much. Sometimes they even want the same things, dream the same dreams, go after the same goals. If your sister does something good, you rise with her. If your sister does something bad, you fall. You know that quote that's like, a good friend will help you move, a best friend will help you move a body? Uh, That's true and sweet and all in its own morbid way. A good friend will help you move, a best friend will help you move a body, but a sister? A sister doesn't need to be told to help you move the damn body because she was there when the murder happened and she's probably already digging the grave. here today to talk about four sisters, the Gonzales-Valenzuela girls. These four sinister women were born into hardship. They were born in the 1910s and 20s to a poor family living in the Mexican state of Jalisco. Their names were Carmen, Delfina, Maria de Jesus, and Luisa, who went by the nickname Eva. Delfina and Maria de Jesus became the most famous of the sisters because they were caught first, but there may very well have been blood on all eight of their related hands. The gonzalez valenzuela family was not a happy one. Their mother was fanatically Catholic, and their father was a cruel, abusive alcoholic who reigned with an iron fist not only over his family, but over the entire town. He had worked his way up from shopkeeper to chief of police, but he was a totally corrupt authority figure, and his violent, reactive temper made him a terror on the job. His daughters resented his rule, especially as they grew older and interested in dating and just having freedom. As one Mexican documentary says, the sisters grew up in an environment of authoritarianism and abuse. When Carmen, the eldest sister, ran away from home with a lover to escape the scene, her father grew so angry that he threw her in jail. Threw her in jail simply because he could. But things got even worse for Carmen when her father then murdered a suspected criminal, shot him right in the back, and because of that, had to flee town, leaving his teenage daughter locked up in jail for the next 14 months. She was finally released with the help of a much older grocery store owner who fell in love with her and eventually got her pregnant. But things were getting so uncomfortably hot for the whole family because of their father's actions that eventually they all had to pack their bags, change their surname, and flee to the city of El Salto. Despite their father's ravings and protestations and abuses of power, his girls were growing up and they were starting to work. They began working in the textile business, but quickly realized that scraping by with a meager salary from some terrible factory was not going to get them what they wanted in life. They wanted money, they wanted power. They needed to become not workers, but business owners. And you can say a lot of terrible things about these sisters, but you can't say they didn't have drive. So by now, Carmen had already experienced the running of a business because one of her exes, a petty criminal, had helped her open up a little bar in El Salto. Delfina soon joined. At age 28, she opened her first bar, which doubled as a brothel. This was the beginning of a long, messy cycle of opening and closing brothels, as the sisters were continually running into trouble and then having to move their center of operations elsewhere. Delfina and Eva opened up an establishment together called Guadalajara de Noche, or Guadalajara by Night. Maria de Jesus opened up one called La Casa Blanca, the White House, and then eventually she purchased a more upscale bar from her ex-sister-in-law. This establishment had been run by a gay man who was nicknamed Poquianchis. Even though Maria changed the bar's name to La Barca de Oro, or the Ship of Gold, the nickname Poquianchis stuck, which is why years later, These Gonzales-Valenzuela sisters would be called Las Poquianchis in the press. Now, I wasn't able to find any real translation of the nickname. It seems to be just simply a nickname, but apparently the sisters hated it. Anyway, by 1949, Carmen, the oldest, the one who'd spent time in jail, was dead of cancer, and Delfina was running things. The dance of opening and closing brothels continued as the sisters tried to stay one step ahead of the law, which was always on their tail. For example, when the government of one Mexican state prohibited sex work, Maria moved her business into Delfina's brothel, which was located one state over, a more lenient state. Then that brothel got shut down because someone got shot there, and the sisters and their workers were forced to move again, and so on and so forth. Sometimes, though, they stayed one step ahead of the law, quote-unquote, by letting the law in. The sisters would befriend police officers or city authorities, offer them favors, bribe them, make them customers, date them, maybe even give them a little cut of the profits so that they could then continue operating their brothels. They apparently even got false documentation from the Ministry of Health that declared that their workers were totally healthy. This was not true. Their workers were not healthy at all. They were not happy. They were not empowered. They were not treated well. They were not even grown-ups. Because for all the moving and opening and closing and nicknaming and staying one step ahead of the authorities, which may have made the sisters seem like misunderstood entrepreneurs if this was another story, what was going on behind the doors of these establishments was nothing short of a waking nightmare. The sisters worked with several accomplices, kind of a gang, and these accomplices would be sent by Delphina to trawl the countryside for girls. Delphina wanted very, very young girls, poor, frightened, desperate girls, the virgins that her clients demanded. Her accomplices would pick out these girls, who were 15, 14, 13, maybe even 12, and trick them by telling their families that they were looking for servants and that the girls would be given a job, a good, honest, well-paid job in the domestic labor sphere. These parents would agree, thinking that, well, at least with the job, their daughter would have a shot at a better life. What happened instead was torture and slavery. The girls would be taken to Delphina, and given to her for life. She would strip them. She would have them inducted into her world by having her accomplices rape them. Then, their psyches already damaged, maybe shattered, she would make sure they could never leave. The girls would be put into debt slavery by being forced to buy clothes and cosmetics from Delphina and her sisters, and then forced to work to pay off the debt. It was an intentionally impossible task. Worse, Delfina and Eva and Maria de Jesus would make sure that the girls were too terrified to leave by subjecting them to beatings and rapes, and sometimes even letting them see their co-workers get killed. If the girls got pregnant, they would be forced to have an abortion. If they had the baby, it would be killed immediately. If the abortion killed the mother, too, then mother and baby would be hastily buried in the same grave. This went on for over ten years. Now, once the sisters started feeling like the authorities were really kind of after them, they started leaving their workers locked inside one brothel or another with very little to eat, while the sisters themselves hid from the police. By the spring of 1963, their workers were transferred to another brothel and left to basically starve and rot there. Maria de Jesus would visit now and then, maybe bringing a few scraps of food, But these terrible conditions went on for seven months before the women were then transferred to another location, a ranch in San Angel. It was as though these women had been put on a shelf, like canned food, to wait out the apocalypse. But these women were human, of course. They needed air and light and water and something to eat. Outside, the sisters' paranoia grew. They wanted to open up another brothel, get back in the biz, so to speak, But it felt like the authorities were increasingly on to them. And they were. On January 12, 1964, the police raided the ranch, either on a tip from an escaped girl or from a mother who'd been looking for her missing daughter. Eva fled. Delfina, Maria de Jesus, and eight accomplices were captured. Bodies started getting dug up. Days later, a 15 year old girl was telling the police a horrific story. The girl told police that two years ago, a member of the sisters' gang had lured her out of her tiny village with the promise of a job and had brought her to the sisters instead. When this girl became, quote, uncooperative, they sent her to the ranch where they informed her. That they were going to kill her she had been there two weeks and was fully expecting to die before the police raid saved her i saw three die in those 15 days she told police last saturday they put me in a room by myself and told me i would die this sunday thank god the police got here before then the stories that were pouring out of these captive girls were shocking the entire nation of mexico and soon enough the entire world Reporters came from the U.S., from Germany, from France, and Italy, snapping photos and asking for interviews about what people were calling the Horror Ranch. Bodies were being dug up on the ranch, and the counts climbed higher and higher. First, the report said that the corpses of 17 teenage girls and two children had been found. Then it was 28 bodies, including eight children. Some even claimed there were 100 bodies found, though officials said this was an exaggeration. Delfina, who was by then in her late 50s, and Maria de Jesus, almost 40, had to be heavily protected from citizens who wanted to tear them from limb to limb. Three times in captivity, Delfina tried to commit suicide. The girls who were rescued from the ranch thought that at least 30 of their co-workers had been killed. They spoke of these forced abortions, of rape, of starvation. They said that murder was used as a disciplinary action or else it happened when the sisters decided that a girl had outlived her usefulness. Girls who were too old or thin or weak or sick would be murdered when they were no longer able to please the clients. Even the crime of not smiling at a customer might be punishable by death. Bodies would be buried or burned in a makeshift crematorium. Another girl, this one, 14, told the police the heartbreaking story of her initiation— which was a rape by one of the gang members that happened when she was only 13. Like the others, she'd been lured away from her impoverished family with a promise of work. Her mother hadn't wanted her to go, but thought that her daughter would be better off with the González-Valenzuela sisters. The girl spoke of being beaten frequently and watched constantly. It was her mother, though— who banded together with two other women, both also missing their daughters, after they'd heard rumors that their girls had been seen at González Valenzuela establishments. When the two sisters were taken to court for a preliminary hearing, a crowd of 500 people gathered outside, shouting, "Lynch them!" The sisters faced charges which ranged from multiple murder counts, to kidnapping, corruption of minors, operating houses of prostitution, and more. They admitted to the charge of operating houses of prostitution, But denied that they had ever killed anyone. This meant nothing to the angry crowds outside who wanted them dead yesterday. In fact, the anger was so intense that Eva, the sister who'd run away, actually turned herself in. She needed police protection and chose to face 40 years in prison, the maximum sentence for homicide in Mexico, rather than risk getting torn to pieces by the angry mob. Though, when she had to appear in the courtroom, she apparently had some regrets, She had to be carried into the room as she was kicking, shrieking that she was innocent, and actually tearing off her clothing. Meanwhile, the mob chanted outside, ravenous like wolves, Lynch her! Burn her! Lynch her! Burn her! Under Mexican law, the sisters would be tried solely by a judge, no jury required. The trial could have stretched on for a year, but with all the dead bodies and the living girls there identifying the sisters and the furious mob outside, there was no reason to draw things out. By October, the judge had given them the maximum sentence, 40 years in prison. American newspapers reported that they'd been found guilty in slaying at least 80 girls. Now, here's the subtlest, sneakiest, creepiest detail from the trial. It involved Delphina, the ringleader. The judge told Delphina that if she was going to claim that she wasn't guilty, she'd need to sign a declaration of innocence. Delphina responded that, um, she couldn't write. The judge said, fine, she'd just need to use her thumbprint as a signature. A few hours later, Delphina appeared in court with the tips of her thumbs. Covered in blisters from cigarette burns. I can't help remember her fanatically religious mother when I hear this anecdote. Was this a holdover from her Catholic childhood? She could maybe speak a lie, she could tell the judge that she'd never killed anyone, but something about signing a paper, using her name, using her fingerprint, something intimate like that, Did something about that action feel like a sin to her? She just couldn't do it. She thought that maybe that was the thing that would damn her for all time. Photos of this case were extremely compelling. Photographers kept capturing the sisters in these angry, defiant poses. They were always wearing black, it seems, and were often smoking cigarettes. In the most widely disseminated photo, which even appears on Wikipedia, Maria de Jesus looks like she's been caught in the middle of some sort of colorful curse. In another photo, they're being escorted back to their ranch, presumably to point out the gravesites. And both are in black skirts and head wraps arms crossed surprisingly small between their police escorts. In other photos they argue with their accusers from behind the bars of their jail cell looking furious and totally unrepentant. Probably the most captivating photo from the whole ordeal though is a picture of these teenage girls rescued now surrounding the sisters and pointing at them. In the photo You see the sisters just absolutely surrounded by all these slender young fingers. It's like the barrels of so many guns. You can almost hear the girls looking at the picture saying, It was them. It was them. These are the women who did it to me. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, the people of Mexico became obsessed with this case. The tabloid Alarma increased its circulation from 140,000 to 500,000 copies a week just to keep up with the demand. People came from surrounding towns to try and catch a glimpse of the sisters, even climbing walls and peering through windows to see if they could watch the proceedings. Also, there was a nationalistic feeling in Mexico that this was something their country needed to strongly reject. Professor Alicia Munoz, who wrote about the sisters in her dissertation at Cornell, says that the sisters' crimes were, quote, interpreted as a pervasive threat. She writes, Las Poquianchis kidnapped and killed other people's daughters. They ran a sordid business for over ten years and were seen as a corrupting sickness, a threat to the nation's morality. Meanwhile, rumors were springing up and the body count was getting inflated. People said that the sisters were leaders of a satanic cult. Tabloids wrote of ritual, sacrifice, creepy things done with blood. Newspapers printed grandiose pronouncements. An article in Alarma declared, All the evil that exists in the world is little compared to what Las Poquianchis did with these unhappy creatures just beginning to flower in life. Mexican papers didn't want the sisters to be seen as Mexico's fault. One paper assured its readers that no one would identify the sisters with the idea of Mexico, just like no one identified Landru, the French serial killer, with France, or Al Capone with the U.S., though I feel like the latter is questionable. This worry even spilled into U.S. papers. For example, the Indianapolis News ran an article headlined, Mexico Shocked, But Vice Is Not Rampant. It was as though the country felt the need to run a quick PR campaign, declaring that these sisters were a freak growth, an aberration, not the result of anything within their system. Of course, as with many killers from every country, The sisters were an aberration, but for years, the system helped them kill. Plays, movies, and books were made about these sisters. Misinformation continued to swirl through the presses, and the case continued and continues to haunt Mexico's collective imagination with a mixture of horror and fascination. The sisters themselves, though, faded away. Delfina and Eva eventually died in jail, while Maria de Jesus served her sentence and then vanished into freedom. She would be 96 this year, but it seems likely that, like so many of the girls she tortured and starved, she too is dead. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this story, I would love if you subscribed on Apple Podcasts. I would love even more if you might consider leaving a review. And the music you have been hearing throughout this and other episodes is by Spheria Trio. If you loved it, you can listen to them at spheriatrio.bandcamp.com. That's S-F-Y-R-I-A, spheriatrio.bandcamp.com. I'll see you next time on the next episode of Criminal Broads. And until then, I hope you have a wonderful day.